0: Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, we have another special guest. So our guest this week is comedian, journalist and streamer Ellie Gibson Ellie how are you it's a delight to have you
1: first of all I'm slightly offended to be introduced as you said another special guest that's a contradiction isn't it? that's not oxymoron <laughs> oh, we've got another special guest <laughs> if you said a very special guest or even just a special guest I'd feel a little bit more honored but we've got another special guest Ellie Gibson hi <laughs> <pie. laughs> Oh, not
0: another one yeah, yeah yeah so I think I just I treat you all equally so none of you think you're any more special than the other ones I don't want anyone to think they're at the bottom of the ladder but then they're not the top of the ladder either so there's a bit of tenuous management going on of egos there but we are happy to have you Ellie just to be clear about that so uh, yeah and, you know, and look, not I, just another person to us
1: yeah well I, I've, I've edited over 100 and 250 episodes of my own podcast and I, I let's not mess about let's be honest some guests not all guests are equal some guests are more equal than others let's be <laughs> 100 oh, yeah. it's like when I asked a midwife once like is it true that all babies are like special and beautiful do you just have to say that about all babies and she went oh yeah no some of them are like actually, really ugly it's, that's the
0: truth isn't it <laughs> <laughs> yeah we've definitely got a few of our own ugly babies here if they don't get mentioned on the podcast again that basically people know that they're the ones who are, who are sort of like persona non grata on the podcast so <laughs> that's sort of how we operate here so if you never come up again on the back page Ellie, you'll know it's gone wrong basically then, I, the then that's how I know yeah. I'm an
1: ugly baby that's great that's something that's
0: <laughs> <going to. laughs> uh, we're delighted to have you on here you recently did some stand-up comedy on Mount Everest is, is that true that's a bit of a a weird icebreaker to have on a podcast but I feel like it's the most notable thing that's happened to you in recent history so we should ask about it how was how was Everest
1: uh it was it was you're not going to believe this it was really cold it was unbelievable like it was (laughs) so cold it was it was um the night because so to be fair we didn't we didn't go up Everest because um I don't um want to die so we didn't actually climb it (laughs) Uh, obviously, I could have done it if I wanted to. I just didn't want to. We went to the base of Everest, which in itself is ten days of walking, um, and that's quite a lot of effort. To be honest, that was enough effort. We spent a night in tents at Mount Everest at the base, and it was minus twenty-five degrees Celsius. So oh. yeah, it's it's yeah. My Kindle stopped working. That's how cold it was. That's real hardship. Oh. You never see that on Bear Grylls. You never see him going, "Oh, now I can't read the last chapter of Murder on the Orient Express. My week's ruined." <laughs>
0: <laughs> Amazing. Are you not worried about someone going up there and then going like 10 metres higher and then like beating your record? Is, have you established that like you have to go a lot higher to beat the record or has that been a point of discussion for you?
1: Well, I wish them luck. All like that's what I can say. So we, <laughs> there was a record existing. There was a Nepali guy who, who had the record for the highest stand-up comedy gig, but he flew in, it was a different mountain and he flew in and out on a helicopter, which frankly <laughs> oh. is pathetic. I think we can all agree. <laughs> um, so we actually walked there and, and actually, we, and we looked at the numbers and we were like, okay, so Everest Base Camp is, I think it was like 100 metres or so higher than this guy had done his record, right? So we were like, oh, that's fine. That's that's plenty of leeway, you know? So, so we walked 10 days and got there only to find that the glacier has melted. Because I don't know if you've, you've heard this, boys, but the planet's on fire uh, <laughs> <laughs> and everything's melting. So Everest Base Camp is not actually as high as it, as it was even a few years ago. So uh, sort of three, four in the afternoon, we literally had to scramble around Base Camp, trying to find the highest point at Base Camp, literally scrambling over rocks and scree. And, and eventually we managed to get, I think, something pathetic in itself like 10 meters higher or something than this guy had done it and so by the skin of our teeth we we got the record so I, I I as I say I wish good luck to anyone um who wants to break the record you you would have to go up you'd have to actually go up Mount Everest you'd have to go across the Khumbu Icefall which again um is is I'd <laughs> say more dangerous than running across a motorway so probably I'm not going to do that
2: <laughs> <laughs> on uh, Simon's podcast which you recorded Just before you went to Everest, you were debating about whether to joke about it being the last (laughs) joke some of the people would ever hear because lots of people die when they climb Everest. Where did you land on that in the end?
1: Well, in the end, that was another sort of um, uh, disastrous thing that went wrong. So that was the plan when I went on Simon's podcast, as I said, the plan was to... Um, do the show for like um climbers and people who are going up everest, as it turned out they there weren 't that many there weren 't any climbers there. We were a bit early oh. and also i didn 't realize this, but my my trek leader Tanya told us this that now as well, it used to be that you would go to base camp right and you would live there for a month and or longer and sort of go because you have to acclimatize right so stop me if I'm being extremely mm. dull but you have to go up a bit and then come back down then go up a bit higher and then come back down so your body gets used to the altitude and lots of people still do that but also quite a lot of people like millionaires who are the the, the big market for climbing Everest now they just fly in and <laughs> they'll do like a trek and then they'll come back and then they'll helicopter out again to a five-star hotel in Kathmandu so it's all a bit different now and um, so anyway so uh the point is when we came to do our show we had to break the world record we had to have a minimum of 30 uh people in the audience which again we thought was fine we've performed to a lot less in our <laughs> career <laughs> We thought that that will be fine um but in the end we had to get um all like the sherpas and the, the there were loads of people there setting up um camps for the hikers to come in for the climbers to come in so we had loads of cooks and porters and the ice doctors who were the guys who put the ropes across the kumbu and up thing so um a lot of them didn't speak english and or didn't find our jokes funny so it was quite a tough gig <laughs> uh, to be honest with you we had some great wow. yak based material that we'd worked on <laughs> on the way up that didn't we didn't storm it but they liked it when we took our jackets off to reveal our gold cat suits in minus 15 uh weather oh wow they liked it when we sang and yeah and and they liked them so so and when we sort of set we were setting up we were like how are we going to tell these people that we're here How are we going to get the audience to come and watch the show? And we had this PA system, right, that we had to have to make it a proper comedy gig. So I thought, what is the one tune I can think of that would make me sit up and take notice and come and see what's going on? So I put the Boys, We Like to Party on (laughs) and blasted that to let the Sherpas of Everest know that the Boss not only was coming, it had arrived and it was going to do some comedy. And sure enough, they all came out of the tents like meerkats going, what is that? and uh, that's that's how we did it so it was it was an adventure
0: (laughs) amazing Matthew I think when we finally do our live show it's going to go very similarly so it's uh, nice to hear that how that went down right, right down yeah. to the the gold suits we'll have underneath our regular clothes that will uh, yeah. rip off halfway through so that'll be good
1: I highly recommend it and if if you know if you, or, or you can borrow our vagina costumes if you like we didn't take them to Everest because <laughs> it was too much added extra weight but I'm sure I don't know where are you, where are you doing your live show perhaps we could ship them over
0: probably Bristol so yeah I think it'd be very subversive if we pop those on oh yeah they goes. love it so in Bristol uh, we've yeah. done some
1: good shows in Bristol they're well up for it <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay well that's uh, great amazing to hear about so uh, I'm pleased that we've uh, Um, we've resolved that for listeners of simon parkins my perfect console (laughs) podcast you have the follow-up there to what happened on everest so that's um super handy so uh, ellie you recently appeared on that podcast and it was fantastic to hear about your life and career and how games have formed a key part of both and on this episode we wanted to dial more in on your journalism career which you only talked about a little bit on that episode and I'm, I'm sure you got a lot of stories because you were you know you were doing it for around a decade so um, we all wanted to make sure that we were avoiding retreading the same territory because you you covered it so well there but I know there's a lot more to talk about how do you feel about revisiting this this period of your life
1: oh very jolly honestly um, <laughs> I've listened to your podcast and I think it's great and I love hearing like sort of war stories and funny stories and the terrible press trips and stuff from other journalists and it always Makes me go, oh yeah! I've got a story about that. So I'm very, uh, very happy, and it was a really happy time of my life. So I'm very happy to to revisit it.
0: All right. So um ticking off then a little bit. So growing up, what excited you about games media? Which magazines did you read? Because I know you mentioned that that was something that was on your radar when you were young. What sort of like did that mean to you in your life at that time?
1: Yeah, yeah. So when I've been into games ever since I was a little girl and I used to, um, I had a secondhand Amstrad CPC 464. That was my first sort of proper machine that I owned. So my I used to read Amstrad Action, which came with a cover tape. Can you imagine? <laughs> Very exciting. So it had a, a cover tape and I loved it. I used to read it like cover to cover and yeah, and obviously boot up the tape and play everything on the tape and thought it was brilliant. And then I read official PlayStation for a bit, I think, when when I got into PlayStation and stuff like that. So I was of that sort of era, really. Um, of the era when, you know, games magazines were... It was all like, you know, Amstrad Towers. Do you know what I mean? It was all of that right. sort of... And everyone everyone was a Burke. Or- <laughs> <laughs> it, <was> all-
0: <laughs> it was
1: a happier, simpler time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting to... To hear because I think I feel like your own sort of angle on games and how you talk about games is me is quite in line with that that sort of energy. was that therefore quite a big influence on you when you eventually got into games media?
1: Oh definitely, I think that's sort of irreverent, kind of especially I think in those days because you know games obviously were in their infancy as a medium, and you know it was a huge suspension of disbelief then wasn't it to go okay yeah i I'm this I'm this little plumber made out of eight pixels and <laughs> and i'm identifying or oh, is it like chucky egg oh cool i'm in this hen factory where none of the eggs are even like curved like <laughs> it's just, i think all that that kind of thing of like um, you really had to suspend disbelief and that and that meant you couldn't take it too seriously because what you were doing was silly wasn't it so i i've always found games quite silly but that's why I, I like silly stuff i like funny stuff and it's not, you know, mm. it wasn't about how realistic the graphics, were it, it was, but it was like they were realistic if like, you know, the hen had like actual sort of little toes and not just sticks for legs. It was like that. So <laughs> I think growing up reading those, there, there, there was a lot of humour in those magazines. And, and I think that definitely um, influenced me.
0: Uh, you mentioned in Simon's podcast that Tomb Raider was an important game for you. Obviously, you mentioned there the uh, OPM and the PlayStation become quite a big deal to you um, on the game side. So what did you make of that series as it developed? What were some areas a bit more successful to you than others? Were you kind of like always paying close attention to to how Tomb Raider was going?
1: Oh yeah, I think I've played pretty much all of them, uh, even like the the Chronicles was it and the yeah I like the Egyptian one actually. Anyway, babbing. No, I'm a 46 year old female <laughs> gamer, so <laughs> like all of us, Lara Croft is our she's our Mario. Do you know what I mean? Like that's oh, that's yeah. all we had in those days. I mean, let's be honest, nothing quite will ever capture the magic I think sadly I've realised now of that, that first game and playing that game for the first time because there was nothing else like it and that wasn't just because it was a female character it was the, the atmosphere that game generated and the, and the sort of mm. peacefulness of it and the isolation that sense of being on your own exploring the world that was the first time I'd ever experienced that in a video game. And it's one of those magic things that I don't think you can bottle it. I don't think you can just keep churning it out. And I think elements of the of the games have sort of come and gone with varying degrees of success with the installments over the years. And she is a great character, so I think there's definitely I will I will definitely play the next one. I'm very excited about it. But I've, I, at the ripe old age of 46, I've accepted <laughs> that some things <laughs> were of their time. You know, and some magic moments are magic because you can't recreate them
0: yeah that's fair enough so your first job in games was working as a copywriter for sony that um it was amazing to hear some of the you know the the kind of irreverent stuff you tried to put in like a time (laughs) crisis manual during that um, episode you did with simon but i suppose like in general what was that career move like and how come you didn't um, ultimately end up sticking with it long term because i imagine you had a lot of opportunities to sort of move up in a company like that
1: well, oh well, this is very. Um, this is. I mean, this is not the most feminist thing I've ever said, but I've got a boyfriend. Uh, <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so I joined Sony, and a few months after I, I joined PlayStation, I met. Um, I met a lovely man called Richard, who was an Australian man who worked in IT there, um, and yeah, and we we went out of each other, and it was really fun and lovely. And I was still very young at this point. I think I was like twenty three, twenty four. And I hadn't done the gap year thing or the backpacking thing, and I had always wanted to do that. So then he said, oh, look, I'm going back to Australia. I'm going to go back home. Um, Why don't you come with me? And um, in some ways, in retrospect, stupidly, I went, yeah, all right, fine. Um, (laughs) So I'd only been at (laughs) Sony a year and a bit, I think, and I was having a great time. But I was like, "Okay, no, let's let's do that. Um, I think I had half a mind that I would come back and and carry on with it, but obviously that's not how that works. Anyway, so I bought my round-the-world ticket, and then uh, he chucked me a few months after that, and then I went anyway because it was done then. And then So then I had this big adventure away for a year, and I ended up working at the Vietnam News, which is where I got, I say, journalism experience. Um, I wrote a lot of government propaganda, and then (laughs) I... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, and then I came home, and then and then got into sort of games magazines that way. So it's funny, isn't it? I, you know, I'm I'm I I'm glad I did that because I think I I enjoyed writing the manuals for a bit, and like my lovely friend Russell is my boss, and he's still there, and he's still doing it, and it, he absolutely loves it. But I think I couldn't be as irreverent as I wanted to be. I couldn't be silly, and I couldn't show off my stupid personality in the same way that you can with journalism. So I think it was a good thing um, that that uh-huh. I left really.
2: I can't remember specifically Sony manuals, but there used to be a bit of a jokey manual culture, you know, like definitely as a Nintendo guy, like the the rare manuals were, were always pretty goofy. I remember getting a letter printed in Games Master celebrating the art of good manual writing. Because that's the kind of fifteen-year-old I was. So well,
1: thank you. Because yeah. it is a bloody art, and it's about time it was recognised. I might. I tell you what, my Sky Odyssey—that's my opus. That could stand up there with the bloody Booker <laughs> prizes, whatever they, whatever it is. Where's my Booker prize? <laughs>
0: I, I was shocked to learn you named Jack from Jack and Daxter Alley, which I think is incredible claim to fame i love that first jack and dexter <laughs> game i think it was fantastic matthew doesn't like the jumps of um sony platforming <laughs> um, icons um so that's um it's a no from him but um i thought that was um that was a really a cool game and an amazing thing to have had a hand in so um i suppose like which other games did you end up working on were there any you had a particular affinity for aside from jack and dexter
1: i did like sky odyssey actually because that was the first one i ever did and wrote the manual for and i just i like playing games anyway so that was a good one um i'm trying to think A lot of them just stick in my memory because I played... Do you remember Extermination? I did that one. Mm. Uh, That was sort of pretty mediocre. I did... I worked on Airblade briefly.
0: Oh, that's an underrated game. That's a pretty cool game. uh, It's like basically hoverboard Tony Hawk, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do remember there being a thing about the logo and the, the poor designer had to redo the logo about 800 times. Um, I think they might have spent more time on the logo than the actual game, to be honest, which might (laughs) might have
2: cost them in the end. I just can't believe that Jack from Jack and Daxter didn't have a name until the game got to the the manual. Until the game got to
1: Ellie Gibson. Thank you very much. Let's, (laughs) you know, let's come on. (laughs) Right. But that is what were they calling him? He was just introduced to me. They had a beautiful, big sort of art book. I remember, I remember it. They had this ring binder. That was the first time I'd ever seen, seen it. They had this, the product manager had this glossy ring binder and they had this gorgeous artwork in and they were like, this is Daxter. We know his name and this is, we have this blonde character and we just don't know <laughs> what to call him. So I came up with this list of like 50 names, one of which was Jack, because my flatmate at the time, we used to call him Jack Jack. Um, and they said, yeah, we like that. We're going to shorten it to Jack.
2: That's just, that's so wild to me. Like, yeah. That they create him and we're like, oh, we don't know who this, what this guy's deal is. I think like, he's got this mate called Daxter, but him, no idea. I
1: mean, aren't they lucky that my flatmate's nickname wasn't Cockface or something like that? How different history might have been, really.
0: <laughs> yeah, Colin Colin, and Daxter doesn't quite have the same, um, same vibe. I also like the <laughs> idea that Naughty Dog were like, Daxter we've nailed we know that that is like bulletproof but th- but <laughs> this guy yeah that's um amazing that that genuinely like blew my mind as a fact I couldn't I couldn't believe that when I heard it so I'm pretty sure they refer to him as Jack in the dialogue in the game so they had to I guess go away and record it off the back of that real cause and effect stuff there but, uh, <laughs> yeah well um, you are welcome so, that's Annie- what I'm saying <laughs> no, I appreciate that. Uh, so uh, I suppose we've covered a little bit there why you wanted to step away from that work. But I did want to talk about how your your first foray into games media. So you mentioned you went to work for a games magazine in Macclesfield, and it shut down. What was that whole period like? And what was that magazine? Because I I don't think that detail came up on that episode you did.
1: Oh, that I mean that was hilarious. So basically, what happened was I went travelling. I left Sony. I went travelling, um, and I came home. And I had no job, obviously, and I I ended up being offered two jobs. I, would, I was offered this job on in Macclesfield, on this magazine, or I was offered this job in London, where I live, where I'm from, where all my friends are, and my family are, um, doing PR um, for an agency that was doing PR for like I think Driver three or four or something, and it must have been three. I can't remember. Anyway, Um and I took the PR job because it was literally a third more money, and it was in London, and I didn't have to move. And I think I lasted about four days. And then I rang the Macclesfield people and went, uh, is that job still going, please? Because I think I've made a horrible mistake. <laughs> so I can't remember if I told this story on the other podcast. I'm not sure. But um, anyway, I went up to Macclesfield and um, I, the magazine, I worked on two magazines, Station Gamer, uh, which was very cool, mm. actually, little A5 magazine. That was its main differentiating point. It was small. <laughs> and um and then I worked on this magazine called it was originally called PSG twenty-four seven. And I think even before that, before I joined, it might have been called at one point PSG twenty four seven three six five. And then I <laughs> All...
2: What does PSG stand for? PlayStation
1: uh, that, that Gaming. They're, that they're
2: doing it all around the clock. Yes.
1: Right. <laughs> uh, Paris Saint-Germain. That's right. It was a, it was a football magazine football <laughs> slash games magazine. Uh, yeah, so I think right. it was short to PSG. <laughs> and then it was in this warehouse. Um, outside. It wasn't even in Macclesfield, right? So I, I moved to Macclesfield thinking, okay, it's a little northern town. That's fine. I went to Union Sheffield. I like the north. That's fine. Uh, only to discover that the actual magazine was... Uh, Honestly, on a motorway outside Macclesfield. Um, and I couldn't drive and didn't have a car. So Oof. to get to work, either I got a lift if I was lucky, or very often I would have to get the train, a couple of stops, and then walk like a mile along a motorway. And then Oof. the um, the the office was next to a little chef. Um, so... <laughs> We had a lot of Olympic breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> and there wasn't even like... There wasn't like... Apart from the little chef, there, was, there wasn't like a shop. Do you know what I mean? A little sandwich van used to come round at lunchtime and that's what you had for lunch because that was, that was that. And then on Fridays, we would all get into Martin's car and drive to the Vernon Arms and drink as much lager as possible and then go back to the office. <laughs> so it was... Um, yeah, it was a funny place to work and not very well run, I don't think. And, and basically... People would leave, and and the, the staff got smaller and smaller until there was two of us left producing this one games magazine, and then that folded. And they, yeah, it was it was all it was all messy, but mm. but it was an amazing time because the people I worked with were so brilliant, and I'm still friends with a lot of them. I went on to work with a lot of them, that's how I know like Dan Whitehead, who um, writes for Eurogamer, and he also wrote a lot of Go8bit stuff um and matt martin who was on bg 24 7 and yeah and my mates paul and martin and it was it was a very jolly time it was that thing which i'm sure you must have had in your careers where there comes a point sometimes where it's a bit like you're in a shipwreck do you know what i mean there's like there's like five or six of you and you're just stranded on this fucking island and you're just trying to build a shelter and keep the fire going and like you know <laughs> eat some fish and just hoping you don't end up having to drink your own piss and eat each other that's what you're hoping for <laughs> but um, it usually does reach that point have you I don't know does, does that resonate with you or have I taken the metaphor too far definitely
0: no it, it, it does like I think all my strongest connections in games are from people I work with in my first Starfighter job I'm still are friends with those people years later and it's partly because of the time of your life that you're in but it's also because of the circumstances like you say so yeah that definitely um definitely rings truth for me um mm. yeah yeah um so it came to an unceremonious end then ellie what happened to you after that
1: so yeah the magazine folded and then they offered me a job on simply cards and paper craft <laughs> and again how different history might have been if i'd accepted that <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: then i think i came home oh that's right no I went on a press trip I went on a press trip to Paris the magazine had folded but Kat Channon, um was like just come on the press trip anyway so I met her and then I met Tom Bramwell who was um, on Eurogamer I don't think he was the editor back then but he was working on Eurogamer um, and I met him at a dinner there and we had a, a good laugh and became friendly and then and then it turned out Eurogamer were looking for a staff writer so I had an interview with them and then got the job news writer it was news yeah so that's that was that oh,
0: okay well that's uh exciting so I have an absolute ton of questions to ask you about Eurogamer but we're going to take a very quick break and we'll uh, we'll come back with that so uh, uh thanks for uh taking us through your uh, early part of your career Ellie so that was a weird end to that section no that's all right <laughs> uh yeah we'll keep this bit in matthew so the listeners know that i'm self-aware about how weird that um that outro was all right i'll jump <laughs> I'll, I'll jump i'll jump back in then. i love this breaking okay, the fourth
1: yeah. wall this is very strong <laughs> very good it's
0: it's all we have in lieu of like a professional podcast so yeah, yeah. it's um it is what we have Welcome back to the podcast. So we're going to ask Ellie all about her career at Eurogamer here. So I suppose to go a bit more in detail with your Eurogamer hiring in 2005. I I think it was 2005, Ellie, according to a a gamesedition.biz story I read about your your hiring. Maybe it's MCV actually. Um, So how did you, uh, you talked a bit about the press trip there. Did you have to do anything else to get the job? Was there like a, a more intensive interview process? What was the setup like at Eurogamer at the time?
1: Well, there wasn't really much of a set up at all really. So when I joined Eurogamer, yeah, I think it would have been about two thousand and five, there wasn't really an office. There was like Rupert's parents' garage which was attached to their house in Brighton. And then there were some sort of desks and computers and men in there. And they that was Eurogamer, um, really. Um, like you, you'd be hearing Barbara putting the casserole on for the dinner while you're trying to write your news stories Stop. so um, <laughs> it was very nice um, so there was that and then so I met my interview was with uh, Rupert, who, Rupert Lohman who was the founder um, with his brother of Eurogamer and Pat Garrett who has come on um, so Pat was a famous, a sort of legendary rock and roll journalist, possibly the ultimate like, you know, rock and roll journalist who I think once went missing off the coast of Alcatraz or something, but turned up just to be drunk. <laughs> anyway, uh, he could tell his own stories. So I they I met them in a hotel and, and, and they interviewed me. And uh, I think I might have had to do some practice news stories or show them some writing or something. But then that was it. And then and at the time, I had no money. I was living with my parents. So I was just in my little bedroom. And I think I had to do eight to 10 new stories a day. So I was in my childhood bedroom typing up stories about video games, which was sort of a dream come true in a funny way. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, so because at that time, like I remember Pat quite clear. I remember him saying, I don't care where you work, you know, as long as you get the work done the hours i kind of had to have set hours because video games news then it was always about being first and getting it done within sort of working hours but but it was quite radical at the time most of us work from home and that was quite radical at the time now it's like it's bloody normal isn't it but um Mm -hmm. i remember being quite like oh the freedom of that to just go yeah you can you can work in jamaica for all you care i don't care um that was quite fun Mm. But then I had I learned after about it. a friend of mine who also <laughs> worked from home said to me, "You have to put shoes on every day. You have to find a reason to put shoes on. <laughs> Otherwise, you you do descend into like not washing and like especially if you're working in the room when you're living where you're living that can be quite depressing. So I had to work out. Oh no, huh. you have to get up. You have to get washed. You have to you know put mascara on. Uh, obviously you don't you don't. Uh, <laughs> um, but." Um, it took me about a year to sort of get my head around the the discipline of that yeah
2: Mm.
0: did you sort of see Eurogamer as sort of disruptors a little bit at the time just because coming from print media background and going straight into something that's quite quite different you know walking past a little chef every day and to work (laughs) with a bunch of you know blokes making magazines to being in your room typing up you know for this basically new media platform was was there that kind of like feeling that you were on the cutting edge or did it feel a bit more sort of hobbyist than that
1: well it was funny because I hadn't because I hadn't come from future publishing or what was the other one imagine imagine yeah I I did get offered a job on imagine I think and then they or maybe it was an interview and then they rang me and said um I'll just let you know it's eight thousand pounds a year and I was like I can't (laughs) I can't live on that I can't that's that's hilarious. So I was like, no. But anyway, uh, so yeah, so I didn't, I wasn't coming from that background. And, and the the magazine I worked on in Macclesfield was a bit of a cowboy outfit and it was all a bit spit and sawdust. So it definitely felt like we were, well, well literally people from future would say things like that to Rupert and into us at parties, that we were just little boys in our bedrooms. And we sort of were, you know, Um, that wasn't hmm. totally unfair, but there was definitely this slightly sneery, it's a bit of a joke, you know magazines like people would say things like "Oh, magazines will be around forever, people just like physical media they' you know like um there was a bit of that, and we just kind of we weren't sitting in our bedrooms going, we're gonna show them who's boss. We were like, we're just gonna get our heads down and like <laughs> do the work and and it all sort of work out and it and it did.
0: Mm. <laughs> It changed so fast as well, because you joined in 2005. But I feel like I joined Games Media in 2007. And by then, Eurogamer was already quite a big deal, it felt like. So did it feel like things were were changing quickly while you were there? Like, were you seeing, like, the audience grow? Was it becoming a more professional outfit? Or was it, you know, at what point did it stop being, like, some blokes in a garage and the casserole, (laughs) etc.?
1: Oh, have golden days. Um, Yes, it did. It did... um... Like the numbers the numbers would, would would go up, basically, as Pat would say. The numbers are going up. Uh that was sort of his catchphrase. As long as Pat was saying that, everything seemed to be all right. Pat was <laughs> Pat was basically just our dad. Do you know what I mean? And as long as Dad said everything was fine, it was fine um there was quite a long period of time where like I remember we used to have monthly editorial meetings where we would meet up once a month and we used to just have them in people's houses like <laughs> we had one in my house once I think I made a spaghetti bolognese it was so it was like that but then I did and we got the office in Brighton um and then I think they're in a bigger office a bigger office after that and but even then it was still optional you know you didn't kind of have to go in at least if you're on the editorial team I don't know if it changed but a lot of them did a lot of them did like living in Brighton and liked being together so it became like a serious a serious thing there was a sense of that there was always a sense of we are building something we are it wasn't really about beating anyone else or you know getting rid of magazines but there was this idea we're going to build this thing and we're all in it together and we're all working really hard and somehow it will just sort of come good (laughs) it'll be fine (laughs) yeah so
0: you start as news editor at this this point where the 360 era is kicking off and that the ps3 would launch in um 2007 over here and the we would launch in 2006 was it exciting to come into that that sort of generation what did you make of the industry at that time
1: oh it was amazing it was a brilliant time to be uh, joining and, and doing all doing news especially because just something mental happened every day <laughs> so there was something to write about <laughs> and that you had all these characters in games you know you had all these people bitching each other out and you had like you had like big executives like david reeves you go and interview him and you knew at some point he'd just say something nutty and you You'd be like brilliant. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was just really, really, I remember him getting up and like singing "Winds of Change" at Gamescom or something. Like it was just mad. <laughs> so I loved that, and I loved you know news is really about conflict, isn't it? Even video games news. So to, so to, to have this sort of these console wars, and and then you had these new emerging emerging technologies. You had like the Kinect and the Wii and all this stuff, and it felt like a really exciting time definitely to be in games and to be writing about games for sure Ooh.
0: what sort of games from around that period were important to you do you remember
1: oh no you've put me remind me what games were around oh. that period <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh <laughs> dead space um no, that's i, I shit. don't know that's, of shit. Of <laughs> no, that's shit <laughs> uncharted I'm gonna uh, now.
1: video games no, I 2007 <laughs>
0: For context for the listeners, I did not put this in our episode plan. Quite a lot of my questions I've not put in the episode plan, actually, and I've just been ambushing Ellie with those questions. So I do apologise, Ellie, to, for springing this on you. But, um no, I'm, yeah, just, looking I'm at just curious it. to know oh, what you
1: Uncharted, that yeah. was quite good. Uh, but really, it's just a shit Lara <laughs> Croft, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Super Mario Galaxy, that was shit. Whoa. Uh, Bioshock <laughs> is sort of all right, I suppose. Mass Effect, very dull. Um <laughs> Assassin's Creed, yeah, quite good. Uh, actually, I mean, B-movie game, I'm sure that was an absolute classic. <laughs> uh, yes, as you can see, my bar, I would say, is quite high for what constitutes a good game. Mario and Sonic at the Olympic Games. Ah, oh, I mean, it was a fun game, but more importantly, I got to go to Vancouver and um, watch uh, people in Mario and Sonic costumes uh, try to get around an ice rink, which was hilarious. So... <laughs> Yeah, golden, golden times. I went
2: to a Marion Sonic at the London Olympic Games reveal event inside the Tower of London, where they made Jonathan Edwards, the Olympian, compete against a lookalike of the Queen (laughs) at Marion Sonic
1: is what i'm saying you wouldn't have that now that was a happier simpler time when video games didn't take themselves too seriously i went to some tomb raider thing and they had chris barry being the butler it was brilliant he's gone over now isn't he he's got absolutely batshit uh if only, if only he been frozen in time like a hologram ironically
2: <laughs>
0: oh amazing um, i feel like there was a moment in the late noughties where it felt like Eurogamer just became the center of conversation in games, which I was super jealous of being on a magazine that no one read at the time. Um, In fact, I think I could even like isolate it down to a specific event. It was uh, Ollie Welsh. I was on the same Metal Gear Solid 4 review event as him. And I just got the impression that maybe it was the way PRs are chatting to him and just like the way he was talking about the website that Eurogamer had become this huge deal. What was it like to be caught in that maelstrom where, you know, giving out a controversial score could become a massive event? Like, do you remember the moment you felt like, oh, this has blown up now and it's actually like everything is kind of like popping off?
1: Well, nobody ever treated me with that degree of respect and reverence. I mean, <laughs> 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 you've met Ollie Welsh. It's impossible. His nickname used to be the European... Um, partly because he is he's half Swiss, but also he's just got this sort of air of continental sophistication that the rest of us can only hope to emulate. You just sort of naturally respect him. I don't really command that in people. I often command sort of just general distaste because of my vulgarity. So it's a different. I'm sure I've, I've, what what it was like to be him. It must have been fucking amazing. Uh, but... <laughs> I used to get things like, I had Nintendo complain that I had been tasked with reviewing Wii Fit 2. Like... (laughs) Because... Because why was it? I can't even remember now. It was obviously sexist, but they dressed it up as some other bullshit. Um... Uh, they, they, I think they said I wasn't a target market. And I was like, I'm a 35-year-old woman. Who is your target market if it's not me? <laughs> um, and I think they might have said I was too much of a hardcore gamer. But again, I was like, I can't even get through the door in Gears of War. What are you talking about? <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was different. Um, so, yeah, but no, I definitely, the, the publication <laughs> commanded that level of, of respect and I think deservedly, because the serious proper reviewers did take it really seriously and Ollie and Tom and, and all the others did it did amazing works. I mean I can't write like Tom Bramwell and Ollie Welsh and it was sort of the day I realised that it was it was pointless trying <laughs> was the day that I found my voice and my sort of stuff took off a little bit really. So yeah, it's not to say I can't review a game or tell a good game from a shit one. But um I I'm not articulate in that particular way in that style. So I have just as much respect for them as as, as the people who were licking their balls at that Metal Gear Solid event, I expect. Yeah. <laughs> Although I wouldn't ever do that to them or say that even to their face. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, that's not entirely how I remember that event, but uh, you know, uh, it, hey. So, how how did you figure out your voice on the site? Were you reading any games media around that time that informed how you felt you were supposed to write, or was it just about you tapping into something? Within yourself that other people didn't have, basically.
1: I, yeah, I think that the latter. I mean, I started off, but I was reading a lot of other stuff. I mean, I had because I was writing news, especially reading stuff all day, and I would read reviews and stuff. And obviously, I'd read, read the reviews on Eurogamer because they were brilliant. It was it was Pat Garrett who said to me, "You know, stop stop trying to write like everybody else. You know, when you're talking to me, you're you're really funny, um, and just just write like you're talking to me." And that was a proper, you know, Oprah style light bulb moment i thought oh right yeah no that's that's all right and i think i think i was trying to yeah like write like the the proper grown-up reviewers and i think i was trying to write like a boy and i think i was trying to you know keep my stupid jokes to myself a bit and many people wish i had done that and continued in that vein (laughs) however (laughs) the, the beast could not be tamed so here we are yeah so that really was a huge uh Life-changing moment for me, and then I just sort of go, "Oh, it's all right. It's all right to take this." And then sometimes I think that clashed a bit, right? So when I wrote the Alan Wake review, I think I I made people didn't like that there were so many. Jo- I described one of the vehicles as being like um, sounding like a bear having a wank and (laughs) (laughs) some people really liked that and thought it was funny and some people found it slightly offensive well I don't know and I think it ended up being edited out of the review and then by popular demand it was put back in (laughs) because you could do that online right you could do you just take shit out I think it went back in so yeah I don't know how I feel about that now. I stand by the, the score I gave that game though and what I said about that game. Uh, I think it was I gave it a seven which is a good score right?
0: Yeah I, I think if anything that review was a great tonic to you know other people's reception of Alan Wake being like oh a game that taps into Lynch and all this stuff and I think that that is the has been the prevailing consensus of that game but your review was very wary of the the very obvious pop culture references in it, and I just thought that was really at the time it really stood out to me as like uh you know a great take on a game I didn't necessarily agree with you know so yeah I think it stood the test of time that that take you know
1: oh well thank you what you're saying is history's proved me right I'll take that I'll go with that yeah <laughs> that's what I've, that's what I've heard from what you've just said.
0: <laughs> um well despite your best efforts they have made another one Ellie are you going to play Alan Wake 2
1: I am I've just downloaded it today I'm very excited because I think it's moved on and I think Epic knows what they're doing you know so uh, I haven't played it yet but I'm quite I'm quite excited have you played it
2: No I haven't um Matthew have you played it yet I've I've played an hour of it mm. and I I walked around the forest looking at some uh, pretty amazing mist.
1: Well, that sounds like a trip to Centre Park. So that sounds ideal. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, The cars sound the cars sound good. No sort of bare wank sound <laughs> much, So
0: that's what all the people wanted to know about Alan Wake too. So that's uh, that's good. Um, yeah. So I did want to ask a bit more about your writing at um, Eurogamer, Ellie, because um, as mentioned, the Alan Wake review really stood with me. It's, you know, stayed with me. But I think in general, the fact that our site was so big at the time, and that I think you ollie and tom and you know your other writers you did you were able to establish personalities in a way that i don't think is always that easy to do on a website it's actually like very easy to be this just one voice amid this amorphous blob of like let's face it blokes most of the time but you know it's sort of um i think that you just you really did stand out no doubt you got a lot of shit for it um for you know your writing style but it was super confident. I-, I was curious if there were any other pieces from your time when you were a gamer that you're particularly proud of.
1: Um, I really, I'm really, i really proud of the uh, long-form pieces that I did. So I did one about Games Master, the history of Games Master. I did one about um, the PlayStation 2, I think, coming out and what it was like to be at PlayStation at that time. And I did one about Gizmondo. And they were great because they took me a um, long time to do, but I had total freedom to do them and enough time to do them and that's one of I think one of the great editorial sort of clever moves at Eurogamer that, that they just said yeah no go and interview who you want they trust me to go and talk to these people and then smush it all together into these long form pieces and I think they stand up I, I do I do like them and I think they've got good jokes in them so uh, I'm, I'm happy with them but the Gizmondo one especially took me years to write because I did all the interviews and stuff and then I was writing it up and I, I um, it was four days before my due date with my first baby. And I actually went into labor and I rang Ollie saying, oh, I, I don't know if I'm going to finish this Gizmondo piece in time. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, what? And I was like, well, I know I said I would get it done before the baby comes, but I think it's a bit late. And he went, are you asking me to for permission to have a deadline extension because you're having a baby? And I was like, "Yep, I am." <laughs> and he went, that, "That's that's fine. You can go to the hospital now." <laughs> so I wrote that when I came back from maternity leave. Um, but yes, it was it was really fun.
0: Okay, so this is the, this is the big question, I suppose, Ellie. What kind of press trip or interview stories can you share share with us from the time?
1: Ah, oh, man. So. It was the it was the good old days. It really was. There was and I went on so many because Kristen, who was the editor for for a long time, he had a little kid as well, so he couldn't get away. I just used to go away all the bloody time. The most extravagant one was I don't know. Do I remember? This? It was when um, it was for the Scarface game, right? And they hired and Vivendi was in the the death rows, right? So they were going under. They knew they were going under. And it was just like, let's just spend the money. <laughs> We've still got it. <laughs> so they hired, they flew, I think, 90% of European media to Spain. And they hired a whole hotel on the Costa del Sol. And they, they even paid for like all the guests in the hotel to be moved to another hotel. But there was this one Scottish mm-hmm. family that refused to leave. And... <laughs> <laughs> and then they they had all this mad shit like in all the corners of the hotel like the lobby and the corridors and stuff they put motion activated speakers so when you walked past you'd have a line from the movie like you'd have Tony Montana going I'm gonna fucking fuck you up I mean I can't remember I don't know if I've even seen it, so. <laughs> but I came down like I walked through reception one morning and this Scottish bloke was at reception going my eight year olds just been told to fuck off by a speaker and I was just saying <laughs> <laughs> Um, my hotel room had three floors and a couple of bedrooms, and it overlooked the pool, which was really nice. And then they had like there was like a seafood buffet. It's where I met Ollie Welsh actually, because uh, he was obviously fitting right in, being so European. And I yeah. had like this. <laughs> I interviewed like all these people on the beach and stuff next to the champagne and seafood buffet. And then like a helicopter flew over and dropped Tony Montana's body into the sea. <laughs> <And> then, like... <laughs> And then that night there was a pool party and there were naked women painted to look like tigers in the cages around the pool.
2: Oh,
1: my <laughs> but Lord. in those Jesus. days, in those days you were just like, oh, there's a naked bird. Do you know what I mean? It just wasn't, I'm not saying it was okay. I'm saying it sort of seemed okay at the time.
2: Right, um, right.
1: <laughs> and I said to the PR, like, fucking hell, like you've got, you've got naked birds in cages and she went yeah we weren't allowed um, tigers because of animal cruelty laws even <laughs> in Spain you can't do it apparently <laughs> so- <laughs> <laughs> and the other plan was that they were going to have these um, big silver platters everywhere of what looked like cocaine but they right. they decided not to do that because um, they were worried some pissed journalists might think it was cocaine and start snorting the flower or whatever the fuck it was <laughs> and die <dying. laughs> <laughs> so that was amazing wow. that was a good one but then see i didn't go on this press trip but um the best headline i ever wrote was sony to conduct inquiry into dead goat incident right. <laughs> which is where they had a thing for god of war 2 i think it was in greece and they had like a big greek banquet um, which included on the display a goat with its throat slit, draining <laughs> blood. <laughs> and like some people there were, animal rights people were upset, I think, not completely unreasonably. So I had to like ring like lovely Hugo at Sony and like with a straight <laughs> face, he had to tell me that they would be conducting an inquiry. <laughs>
0: yeah we heard the um the other side of that story from um tim clark um, who was running opm at the time because he had to have it pulled from their magazine he ran it in the mag and then they had to like basically get it off shelves and he almost lost his job over <gasps> it. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. It was really intense. I thought um, the goat was ta- the one he...
1: that suffered. Jesus.
0: Poor Tim. <laughs> oh, no. <Poor> Tim. <laughs> it was Tim. Oh. Yeah, yeah. But you're right. Like, that was, like, that's the story that, that's a perfect summary of that age, right? So, uh, yeah. Um, any others come to mind, Ellie?
1: Oh, there, well, there was a lot. I mean, so I went on one to um, Romania for black. Do you remember the gun game, that the the burnout that the Criterion people made? Um, I liked Mm. it, actually. I thought it was a good game. Yeah, so I went to Romania, and on the first night, (laughs) I was there with... um, I ended up in a Romanian strip club, which, again, at the time, was pretty just standard. Um, (laughs) And I remember there were two PRs there, and the lady one suddenly went oh ellie i'm i'm the, the the male one disappeared behind a curtain right and we all know what goes on behind the curtain in the strip club and uh the lady pr <laughs> said ellie i'm going to bed um you you will have to you will have to deal with this uh, here's the money and she gave me an envelope of cash cuz this was like romania in like 2006 right like the, there was no fucking <laughs> bloody paypal whatever Wi-Fi. anyway so she gave me this wad yeah. of money and I was like, oh, shit, okay. And I was absolutely smashed. But I was like, all right, fine. Um, and then I went to the ladies, and then there was this knock on the door, and it was the male PR going, Ellie, have you got the money? And I was like, yeah, she's given me the money. And he's like, can I have, I need-, I need some money. And I was like, how much do you need? And he was like, o- o- all of the money. So... <laughs> <laughs> She'd given me the whole money for the whole press trip, and I had to give it to him so he could pay off the strippers and their boss so that we could get out of the strip club and not get stabbed. Oh. So that was a bit stressful. <laughs> and then, like, they had to borrow money off us and stuff to pay for the rest of the
0: press trip. Oh, my word. Wow. It was These all... are more like GTA missions, you know? <laughs> like, that's that's the vibe here, that, you know? That's... Uh... Oh. Um
1: that was that but then the next day and then the next day we had to do all this stuff the next day was like the adventure bit um so they were like oh okay we've hired so they took us to this sort of romanian warehouse and they were like um oh in that corner there's a load of guns so you can just go and fire some guns into the wall and in in that <laughs> corner um there's like a stunt course and these men worked the stunt men for James Bond um, so you have to and I was like oh fucking hell and you had to like jump through a ring of fire and um, you had to like land I can't remember land on a, in a foam thing um, and, I, and I did it you know because I wanted to be part of the team and then I, I violently threw up because I was incredibly hung over um, so yeah it was it was a glorious time
0: <laughs> did you get any sort of like big interviews at the time? Like, did you do you have like levels of access being on Eurogamer to you know like notable devs that sort of thing?
1: Yes, I'm trying to think now. Who did I do? I used to, I did Peter Molyneux a few times, um which was quite funny. um But like Hideo Kojima, that would always be like Tom and stuff. I'm trying to think, but I I worked on I was the editor of GamesIndustry.biz as well, so I used to get quite a lot of exec interviews, and I used to talk to people like Phil Harrison. Um, Phil Harrison I can't remember what I asked but I once asked him a very rude question he gave me the death stare and there was a moment where I thought he was going to throw me out which I know he'd done to other people (laughs) but then we we got over it so there was him and like Peter Moore I did a few times and I quite like the exec interviews um because, and I hope they find they found me refreshing because I couldn't take them very seriously either. Uh, I couldn't sit there and <laughs> ask them about their fucking share price. So um, it was good. It was good fun. Yeah. So
0: uh, I did want to ask about your Gizmondo piece. So, 2012, you, you sort of told the whole, the complete story of this weirdo thing. Can you talk about, about that story and un- unravelling that that whole tale?
1: Yeah. Well, I was always fascinated by um, the Gizmondo and I'd been quite into it. Like, I thought i sort of fell for it a bit i thought oh yeah this because to be fair to it as well you've got to remember this was like pre-iphone right and it was novel this idea of having this device which you could use to send messages and look at maps and do games we obviously think that's totally normal now but it was quite a new idea so I was sort of into it, but then I sort of became aware that it didn't work. And then I sort of, when I started writing news about it, I was like, oh no, it's quite possibly a massive money laundering scheme, allegedly, for the Swedish mafia. So I find that quite <laughs> fascinating. It was just such a great story because it had all these mad characters in it and these nutty subplots and these. Characters who didn't, you know, fictional characters didn't even exist in real life, getting blamed for crashing Ferraris in America. Like it just went, <laughs> I mean, I won't recap it all now because it's too bonkers. So it was great to to be able to write about it and to track down some of the people involved. Mm. One of them wasn't very really happy when the article came out. He, he messaged me and was like, I thought you were going to tell the real story of Gizmondo and you know you've just fallen for the idea like all the journalists do and you're saying it's rubbish and my kids are going to read this one day and what are they going to think and and I felt bad for about a minute and then (laughs) (laughs) I thought you know you know when you have to have a word with yourself and go oh I'm feeling this criticism a little bit is it fair and then I was like No because I didn't I really didn't go into it going I'm gonna smash this thing to bits I was genuinely like this is a fascinating story and I want to unpick it a bit and try and get to the truth and I'm not sure that I I even did or that that's possible but I still think it's a great story and it's I think it's one of those things where I think that bloke probably did believe his own hype maybe you know so I don't think he's necessarily Mm. a bad man I think he I think he perhaps was doing his best but I, I don't know and i feel bad for him if he if he's you know but he can just tell his kids i'm a stupid bitch and that's fine i don't mind what says to them about me <laughs>
2: that's fine. that's very very tactfully but i don't think i've even ever seen a gizmondo in the 1st i've got one i've still got mine what's the best gizmondo game sticky balls
0: we were just passing the name sorry that was the pause sorry ellie <laughs>
1: Sticky Balls. Um, yeah, I think oh. it was like a... Was it a snooker game? I don't know. It had balls in it, obviously. There was only about six <laughs> games ever produced for it. There was a gang one called Colours, I think it was called. That is... oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, Sticky Balls was, was was all right.
0: Well, it's, it's funny as well, because that's in some ways like the ultimate sort of like noughties, you know, gaming thing to unpick, right? Loads of money and hype. Kind of you know, a massive bust at the center of it. Preposterous hardware. Like the whole thing is kinda of like a a perfect sort of narrative of that time, you know? So um yeah, I really recommend it. It's a, a horse named Gizmondo is the name of the piece. It's uh still up on Eurogamer. So uh yeah. Um So why did you ultimately move on from Eurogamer, Ali? And did you ever miss it afterwards?
1: Well, again, this is a very feminist thing to say, but I had some babies and that fucked everything. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't be bothered to go work no more. No, not really. I I had my first baby and then I went back uh, like a couple of days a week. And obviously in that, it was impossible to be like, I think the plan was I was going to go back and be the editor, but I didn't want to go back full time. And it just, yeah it didn't work out so I ended up like I did my Gizmondo thing and then I wrote I started doing some videos for YouTube and it just turned out I wasn't very good at those I a low point was so I used to do these sort of let's plays where I would play a game with um you know a comedian or a developer or something and I invited Peter Molyneux to come to my house and play Dungeon Keeper with me Because it was one of my favourite games, and amazingly, he agreed. And I was like, "Really?" And they were like, "Yeah, no, he's definitely." (laughs) I was like, "Okay, great." And like for weeks, I was like, "Is this really happening?" And they're like, "Yep, yep, yep. It's in the diary. Yep, yep, yep. Even the day before, the morning of, it was like, "Yep, no, he's he's definitely coming." Uh, and then two hours before it was like, yeah, no, he's not. Coming.
0: Uh, <laughs> another broken Molyneux promise. Another broken
1: <laughs> promise. And uh, I had all the stuff set up and I, you know, and it's a funny thing. After you've, you've had a baby and you're only working two days a week and you're trying to find your feet and trying to work out what your job is and where you are, you know, time is really precious. And, and you're really, I couldn't just afford to go, oh, well, I'll just work on something else. Or, you know, I had to produce a video that week. So I was like, what am I going to do? Mm. And there was a coconut in my fruit bowl. So I just drew a face on it and just said, that was Peter Molyneux. And I think me and the coconut <laughs> played Dungeon Keeper or something. I can't remember what we did exactly. But um, yeah, and that, and that was, you know, kind of, kind of, it. I, I just didn't know what else to do. And it was kind of funny and silly. But it was a low point, and I thought, I don't. What am I doing? I don't know what this is anymore.
2: <laughs> and then I got pregnant. It's when you're looking deep into the eyes of a pen uh, pen drawn on eyes of a coconut. Yeah, <laughs> when
1: you're looking at coconut Peter Molyneux, and you're pregnant with your second child, and you just sort of think, what have I become? Um, <laughs> what's this for? I'm no good at this. So, uh, and again, I think it's one of those timing things. I think it's funny. I think if Twitch had been around then. I wonder if I might have found my feet because it was the editing that was killing me really. And yeah, anyway, so I left Eurogamer and I had my baby. And it was around, uh, it was before that actually when I was still at Eurogamer that I started doing comedy and I met this woman called Helen Thorne and we ended up forming this double act and it started to get a bit more successful and the podcast started to get a bit more successful and even make a little bit of money. And it just reached a point where I thought, well, if I'm going to give this comedy, this Scummy Mummy's thing a proper go, I need that time to do this. And she was very happy uh, when, I, when I left. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's what happened, basically.
2: Hmm. Had you ever done... Uh, this isn't really about games, but had, had you ever done sort of stand-up comedy by yourself?
1: So, yeah, so I did a comedy, a stand-up course, when Charlie would have been about nine months old, I think I did this comedy course. Um, basically, because it was like... I wanted to see if I could do it, right? And I thought it would be a laugh but it really wasn't like and that will be my new job that was not the plan I was like I'll go and see if I can do it because I've always wondered if I can do it and it's in a pub on a Monday night so I've got an excuse to go to the pub once a week which again when you've been at home with a baby for nine (laughs) months and sober for nine months prior to that (laughs) that's really exciting like as as an opportunity (laughs) that's the dream so I went and did um, this course and really loved it and had a great time.
2: What is a stand-up comedy course
1: like? What they do is they get a load of custard pies and you stand up. and <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> I, they, I did my course with a guy called Chris Head who still does them and he's great and I highly recommend his, his course. I think he does them online as well now. But yeah, so you go and what I loved about it as well is it's a real mixed bag of people. So I was nervous. I thought, oh, it's going to be like all these people who are really funny and they're all, you know, they'll all be doing their first Edinburgh show and they'll all be professional comedians. And it was a completely mixed bag. There was a couple of those people, but there was also like a bloke Mm. called Tim who was 65, who, you know, just worked in IT and just wanted to do it for a laugh. And, you know, there was a girl who was doing it for a bet and there was a girl who'd been doing it because it was a birthday present because someone said, you're funny, here's your present. And, And one night I was doing a bit... And I said, hey, any fundamentalist Christians in the room? Because I was about to do some very funny stuff about dinosaurs. And uh, these two men put their hands up and went, (laughs) yep. It's like, what are the fucking chances? (laughs) What are the chances? Uh, But they were lovely men. And we, you know, we disagree on religion, but we're still friends. We still chat now. So, Um, And I love that it was all different backgrounds and walks of life. And and that was really... uh, Yeah, but how they teach you. So you go and and Chris will be like, right, okay, um, your your first week's homework is to write 60 seconds of material. And I remember that seeming like the hardest thing in the world, to write 60 seconds of of jokes. And actually, it is hard. And actually, some people stood up and said things for 60 seconds, none of which were funny. But it didn't matter because in that environment everybody's rooting for each other and you're all in the same boat and it just it didn't feel ever like a competition it felt like a funny little club mm-hmm. you know and and that sort of gives you comp- and then when you did get up and say something funny and people laughed it was like oh right hang on you know so you just build up from there so the next week you have to do two minutes and then the next week you might look at that and go well what's the funniest bit in what you've just done what can we pull out of there yeah. and, and then you learn basic stuff like mic technique oh. and tips and tricks and how to come up with ideas and stuff like that. So it's really good. It's a really yeah. great course. Yeah,
2: you have to be very brave to do something like that. I think. Uh, you know, I really enjoy watching comedy, and, but I could never, I could never do it. I just think, oh, just how you get over that initial hump of like the risk of just eating it in front of people. I just, oh, I couldn't deal with it.
1: Well, you you do it enough, and it just doesn't hurt anymore. <laughs> You know, I think
2: right.
1: <laughs> I think that's that's part of it. And, and to this day, Helen and I have been doing it over 10 years and we'll write a joke that we think is fucking hilarious. And we'll be sitting in my kitchen, slapping our thighs, sewing each other's sides up, <laughs> rolling around on the floor. Amazing. We'll go out and we'll do it on stage and no one will laugh. Like, we'll be like, what the Ooh. fuck? But the rule is we do it three times. And if I, if we really think it's funny, we'll we'll try it in three shows. And if people don't like it, whereas on the other hand, we'll be like on stage one night, and like one of us will do the usual punchline, and the other one will say four words off the cuff on top of it, and people will be rolling in the aisles. And we're like, oh, all right, right. and then that goes in the show. So I've learned it's it's not it's not an art. It's not a science, rather. You know, it's not an art either, really. Right, but it's right. it's it's not something you can. <laughs> it's not alchemy it's yeah mm. and I think video games actually was good training for that you know I've I'd, I'd been told I wasn't funny for many years so <laughs> <laughs> to, to stand in front of people not laughing was just like well at least they're not calling me a lesbian bitch that's fine <laughs>
2: uh. yeah I think cause I think games is full of really funny people like it's it's one of my favourite things yeah. about having done this job all these years is every you know I mean, not just writers but you know everyone on the mags was really funny and I just I'd laugh all the time at Future just all day long just chuckling away like an idiot.
1: I think so that's why I used to love press trips as well because you'd be hanging out with these right. people you had this shared common interest with you knew all the same people but also they were just really funny and I just loved it.
2: Yeah I think I've met like 20 people I'd be like oh yeah that person should be on stage but no one we all just hide in magazine and box out box out instead
1: yeah. <laughs> but the brave thing as well like people say that to me and Helen a lot oh you're so especially because we wear skin tight gold cat suits you know oh, you're so brave it's so brave <laughs> and and we always say i don't think because bravery means you have something right you have courage you have bravery it's an absence of something and that absence is shame like it's just <laughs> right it's just sort of <laughs> reaching a point where you go i don't even if i go up there and i do this and it goes badly i'm all right with that i'm going to be okay and and that's not to say it doesn't hurt Mm. that's not to say it doesn't hurt um it 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 can hurt but it's about going yeah it's going to hurt for a little bit but then it's going to be okay again and it doesn't define me as a person it doesn't shatter my entire Mm. self-image or my whole you know um sort of view of myself if i if i fuck this so yeah
0: So Matthew, something happened to us which has never happened in the history of this podcast. We've had bad guest microphones. We've had bad guests. I'm only joking. We haven't had bad guests. <laughs> no, we have. <laughs> <laughs> we don't talk about them. Um, no, it's um, it's unfortunate. Basically, Ellie's uh, audacity recording crashed when we got to the end of this episode. And so the last twelve minutes of audio were essentially cut off. They are like the lost tapes now of the back page. So um, you can talk like they're like the deleted scenes from Twin Peaks. Fire walk with me. You know, I was disappointed, Matthew, because the one good joke I made, I think I made in this episode was in that bit, which is um, Ellie was telling this story about uh, this woman in her sh- community. She streams on Twitch, Ellie, um, and she was talking about how uh, on a Discord, this woman was talking about these candles that she makes that basically someone sends some jizz um, to her and then they, they get mixed into the candles yeah. basically and that's part of what they sell it's kind
2: of spicy <laughs> it, it was
0: and i said matthew a new pod merch idea just dropped and it was the best joke in that i'd made in the episode and it's lost to time now so not as good with me recapping but, it but, but, yeah. but
2: let the record let the record <laughs> note that uh, samuel was very funny <laughs> <laughs> just that one time
0: um so I, I did want to recap what was discussed at the end because i don't want this to be a completely unsatisfying finale essentially um, ellie is on tour at the moment um uh, with a, a scummy Mummies uh stand-up uh partnership <laughs> essentially god i sound yeah. like such a dinosaur describing it this as such, is just, but...
2: I, I love that i love that this is our approach <laughs> to fixing this this is like if you went to the cinema and like the fifth reel on the film broke <laughs> and then so about two hours into oppenheimer <laughs> a man from Odin comes out and goes right guys I can't show you the end of Oppenheimer, <laughs> but I am going to tell you about it.
0: <laughs> yeah. So,
2: and then he just has to remember it.
0: It does <laughs> have like, that energy, yeah.
2: There's a lake, and I think <laughs>
0: Einstein's there. Um... <laughs> yeah, he doesn't build another bomb. He's done after that. You know, he's sort of like it's. Yeah, he's fine. He walks away. So, I'm going to recap what we discussed at the end. So, <laughs> <laughs> as, we, as we nicely tied a bow on everything that we discussed in Eddie's career, um, she talked about how she's moved into Twitch streaming, essentially, and in doing so, has built up this, uh, built, rebuilt her interest in games after, qu- like, a, a lapsed period, essentially, of building a comedy yeah. career.
2: And, uh, yeah, it was, um, it-, it, was, it, it was... It was a nice thing to talk about because, you know, I think a lot of people who are in the industry eventually hit a kind of fatigue or they burn out on games a bit or Mm. they end up having a sort of weirdly kind of combative relationship with games but are still kind of covering them or working with them and actually the idea of like stepping away for a bit as she did to become you know a standard comedian um means that you know that that you can then come back to them and have that renewed i'm I'm not saying i'm at that that negative point with games necessarily but it does kind of give you hope that your relationship with games can kind of flow a bit more
0: i think so i think that is a real thing you know because i i know someone who is caught up in the industry uh sort of layoff uh sort of nightmare that's happening at the moment and she was telling me that she thinks if she leaves games and builds a career elsewhere she'll be able to enjoy games again and i thought that was quite interesting the idea that like you know by being too close to it you're essentially overexposed to it like the um right uh, the analogy that uh, Ellie used was that when she couldn't she did an English literature degree and then after uh, reading books constantly for I don't know three years or whatever it was basically just couldn't read a book for about a year after that just couldn't like bear the thought of it because it wasn't you know it wasn't like a leisurely activity anymore it was essentially what felt like work so yeah that was quite an interesting uh analogy and uh That led into a discussion about Assassin's Creed Valhalla and also her takes on Assassin's Creed Mirage, which she's enjoying. I brought up that Matthew didn't enjoy, wasn't enjoying Mirage as
2: much. Uh, Was there any other details we should recap there, Matthew? Uh, She told a funny story about a line of NPC dialogue from Assassin's Creed Mirage where she was running away and someone said, Oi, come back here, you shit bird. Yeah. Um, Which was much funnier when she told (laughs) it.
0: (laughs) That's the thing, the difference between a professional comedian and uh, two guys talking on a podcast. So, yeah, yeah, that was... um, There was that. Then there was quite a long discussion about Jerome Flynn, who people probably know uh, this podcast, listen to this podcast, know from Game of Thrones. Uh, He is... um, What was his name in Game of Thrones? I don't remember now. I've kind of erased that show from But Yeah, Bron. So, you know, very fan-favourite character. Uh, Matthew talked about the idea that he'd shrunk since the 90s when he was famous with (laughs) Robson and Jerome. And there was a point where... I think, like, it was... It, did this come about because Ellie said that one of her friends told a, a joke about Robson Jerome to some 19-year-olds and they just did not know who the fuck that was, so... Yeah,
2: and then, yes, then I told a half-remembered story about how I thought Robson Jerome had been through some kind of process by which he'd physically changed. <laughs> um, I told this in... I mean, for f- full disclosure, as it's deleted, I, I half-attempted this in the episode and then and then we got to the bottom of it in the post-episode <laughs> wrap-up banter which I probably would have added to the original episode. What I thought was that Jerome Flynn had joined a cult which had shrunk him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Matthew uh, seemed he, to think he was smaller
0: now, which was confusing. He had,
2: I just remember him being very, he had a very square head and now he's got a very bony head. Yeah, um, And I feel like I have definitely watched shows with Jerome Flynn as he is now where I've said, to the person I'm watching it with, one time is Catherine. You won't believe who that is. That's Jerome Flynn from Soldier, Soldier, who used to have a big square head. Now look at him. And uh, I looked it up a, a while back because I was genuinely curious about this in the past, and there was this thing about he'd undergone quite a change in his life because he'd been part of this religious sect for eight years, and which is why he kind of vanished from TV for so long and then returned as this, I mean, what actually happened was a man went away for eight years and aged eight years, (laughs) uh, which is exactly what's meant to happen. Yeah, he aged Uh, in real time. But in my mind, I was like, what the fuck happened to that
0: guy? Yeah. He hadn't shrunk. And another cracking gag that was lost is that Matthew asserted that being part of a cult somehow lost, shrunk him, made him smaller. And I I disputed this detail because I couldn't find it. But there was a Daily Mail headline that said uh jerome Flynn, i lost eight years of my life to a cult and i said to matthew it doesn't say eight inches of his height and uh we all laughed and again got another, yeah. another great joke like not recorded and now you have to hear about it in retrospect
2: i feel it's important that we've recorded <laughs> this little bit where we've explained how like witty and charming we were and some of the jokes that really landed i'm glad that we did get into the Jerome Flynn of it all because that had been troubling me for some time. <laughs> <laughs> this was the time to talk about it, certainly. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm also glad that uh, Ellie really liked Assassin's Creed Valhalla, which I am also a fan of, but I feel like we we have to kind of enjoy it in secret because, uh, you know, it's agreed upon by the gaming community that it's not as good as Origins or Odyssey, where uh, there are some of us sickos who love it. Oh, well,
0: okay, fair enough. And uh, you, to- you said that there's a... A thing you can do where some blokes will wreck a cathedral if you press a button. That was the thing that came up. No, you up, blow wasn't it?
2: a horn and all your Viking mates go on a rampage and, and smash up a, a monastery. That's oh, like okay. a thing that happens in that game a lot, which is good. It was a good fifteen minutes that we lost. Like... <laughs> 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 um, now recapped in uh, half fast form. <laughs> I mean, this is truly like. This is a truly disastrous end to this episode. It's not great. It's not it's <laughs> it's, it's it's run aground, I'll be honest. But um Sam, should we record another <laughs> second ending to put after this ending <laughs> where we apologize for it? Uh, yeah, okay, that might be good. I was going to
0: like get, do the Ellie plugs though because she talked oh, about Oh yeah, that's important. Yeah, okay. So she's uh, half of Scummy Mummies. She's at Ellie Gibson on Twitter. Um, we agreed it's Twitter, not X. We had that whole discussion. Uh, Matthew read out his fucking... He's got... Matthew's got a different Twitter handle to his Blue Sky handle. And so now he has to read that out awkwardly every episode. Where, where can people <laughs> find has you, Matthew? One an
2: underscore, the other doesn't. Yeah.
0: That's it. And then um, Ellie is uh, at twitch.tv slash Ellie Gibson um, Gaming. Yeah. Is that right? Games. games. It's, actually, uh, it's games, yes. God, we're doing this so badly. <laughs> at Ellie Gibson Games... She made a joke about how um put she put games in there in case there was some mistake of what she would be doing on Twitch. It was a joke about like there was a joke about it's like a nan on Twitch essentially. God, I'm explaining this so badly. I really look. hope
2: she doesn't listen back to this us explaining <laughs> jokes oh God, she told us because so I think she I think she would just just die of embarrassment. Having yeah. talked about about not having shame in the episode yeah I just put that to the test
0: just just go and find ellie gibson on uh, on twitter and you'll find links to all of our stuff it was lovely to be joined by her um thankfully we're back in our um our safe zone next week matthew isn't next week two giant men play final fantasy 7 disc one is that what's coming up or do we have to move that back while you, because you've been doing other stuff what's the the deal no, with that we
2: can no I've, I've still got some of disc one to play for sure what what is disc one
0: this one is basically takes you. I think it takes you to the end of to when Aerith dies. That's basically what happens. Spoiler alert! What I, I've made that joke before. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that is basically <laughs> what it, it. You have to fit in. Do you know where you yeah. are now? Is there a big yeah, cannon where that's you are two, now?
2: That's that's two weeks away, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it is. Yeah, we're recording this a little bit ahead of time, so it it's should be It's right? lucky
2: that 2023 isn't full of amazing games I'd rather be playing.
0: <laughs> okay, good. Well, there you go. So um, we uh, this wet fart of an ending to the episode is over. However, I hope you enjoyed Ellie's um, uh, discussion of uh, of her career because it was genuinely uh, a delight to, to hear from her. Great so,
2: Scarface story. Uh, fantastic. Yeah. So top, that's that's top five press
0: strip story. Definitely. Yeah. So um, Matthew, let's get out of here. We'll be back next week. Goodbye.
2: Goodbye.